This is a HeadGum Podcast. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. And, you know, we've talked about labor unions on this show before uh, in my episode with Stephen Greenhouse uh, a month or two ago. Really recommend that one if you want an intro to the topic. But today I want to talk about the labor union that I am a member of. Uh, See, back in 2007, you might remember, there was a writer's strike. You might remember this. Hollywood writers were on the picket lines. Remember that? All the late night shows went dark. Conan started spinning his ring on his desk. And all your favorite TV shows got like weird and bad for like a season or two. If you wondered why like the second season of Friday Night Lights sucked so much, like it seemed like all the episodes are kind of half written and they only really shot two thirds of the season. Well, it's because the strike happened in the middle of the writing process. So that's exactly what happened. Now, look, sure. A couple of our nightly entertainments got a little bit weirder for a few months. But when I joined the Writers Guild, which I know sounds like it's from the Middle Ages, but I swear it is from uh, this year in America. It's the Writers Guild of America. I realized that that strike was worth it because even though the idea of a bunch of TV writers on strike sounds weird, the truth is that they were fighting and continue to fight for the same respect and fair treatment as all workers are. And in fact, I think the WGA might just serve as an example for the way forward for labor in this country. See, the The Guild is not a prototypical union. We're not hard hat guys in factories punching clocks and going to play cards at the union hall. But the industry we're in is clearly massively profitable. And the reason it is, is because of the labor of a relatively small group of people. The people who literally make the things that the entire rest of the business make money off of. So just as the workers who build your car deserve a fair share of the profits from selling that car, so does the writer whose work turned into a movie that earned a hundred million dollars, or the team of writers who built a beloved informational comedy show on a channel that used to be Court TV deserve their fair share as well, especially those people, I think. Since the Guild started in 1933, writers have gone on strike to demand our fair share time and time again in 1952, 1960, 1973, and three times in the 80s, not to mention 2007. These strikes ensured that writers earned fair wages and royalties from their very lucrative work, but also the basic protections all workers need, like health care. And the Guild is still fighting for protections as basic as paid family leave. And through those years, the Guild has been there to make sure that as the entertainment industry shifts, whether to VHS, cable, or streaming, or whatever comes next, VR, direct-to-brain, hyper-immersive, wavelength transmission, all right? The point is, the Guild is there to ensure that the people who come up with that entertainment aren't left behind in the wheels of capitalism. The Guild demonstrates how powerful it can be when a union is willing and able to adapt with a rapidly changing industry. And here's another example of how the Writers Guild has something to say about labor in America today. We live in a world now in which worker organizing seems harder than ever, right? Gig economy workers, telecommuting programmers, the dude who brings you your DoorDash from Chipotle. It's often hard to imagine how individual workers who never have a reason to even talk to their peers might organize, right? Well, much like them, writers predominantly work alone, from gig to gig, banging away on laptops in seclusion. Yet somehow, they manage to create a union whose solidarity is so strong, it's able to take on some of the most powerful companies in America. That's right, I'm not talking about Amazon or Standard Oil. I'm talking about Disney. The Writers Guild goes toe-to-toe with the evil empire, and 
occasionally even wins a round. So to talk about how they did it and what their example means to the future of labor and the entertainment industry, my guest today is Writers Guild West President David Goodman. But of course, he's not just a Guild member, he's also a writer. He's worked on Family Guy, Star Trek Enterprise, and my personal favorite, The Golden Girls. Please welcome David Goodman. I mean, we did a really great episode a couple months ago with a writer named Stephen Greenhouse about, like, who's a journalist who's written about, like, the the history of, like, unions, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I see this as a really good book. It's called Beaten Down, Worked Up. Um, oh, check it out. Yeah. And and so I think it's like this is like a little bit of a follow-up. Now we're talking to an, an actual, actual an actual union right. boss. Do you conceive of yourself as a union boss? <laughs> You know, it was funny during my reelection. One of the people who's running against me compared me to Jimmy Hoffa, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the Irishman was about to come out. It was, yeah, it was it all seemed related. I, I, uh, no, I do not. I mean, I, it's interesting. I think that the the thing about being president of the union is of this union is you have no actual power. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How so? I, I'm the spokesman for the guild. Mm. Uh, we can't do anything unless the members are on board. And so this idea that, that that I could be a boss, a union boss, and tell everybody what we're doing and why we're uh, what we're doing, and they don't have a choice. I mean, that's not our guild. Yeah, uh, I I can't do anything unless the members are on board. Uh, so part of I think part the only thing that I do along with staff and the rest of the leadership is, is educate is like, look, we've seen this problem. We think it's related to this. We yeah. think we could do something about it. But unions are often portrayed in the press as telling the workers what to do and, and limiting what the workers can, and like issuing edicts and things right. like that. And that's in your view, a misconception. Completely. I mean, I think that all unions sort of begin with a group of people of workers whatever industry they're in, deciding that they're going to get together and say, our interests are with each other, Mm -hmm. our power is with each other, and we're going to try and make our lives better. I mean, the thing about, uh, what's so interesting about a union, you know, that idea of a union, that a union is out for itself in some ways is ridiculous. It doesn't make a profit. Nobody, all the leaders are uh, in our union are volunteers. Mm -hmm. I mean, the amount of time that I spend as president of the guild uh, I'm not getting a dime. So, <laughs> right. so I don't have any interest other than improving the lives of our members and making sure they're being fairly compensated and treated well. And so that's, but because you're up against giant corporate interests, and that is again, true with any union in any industry, they have an enormous advantage because they can paint you mm-hmm. the way they paint themselves, you know, the way they are, <laughs> which is uh, in some cases they don't tell the truth. They are out for themselves. They are interested yeah. only in profit. Yeah. And so they, because whatever leverage we have uh, being the workers, whatever, again, whatever industry that is, that the, uh, the, the real bosses, the real employers are going to say they're bad. They're saying we're bad, but they're just as bad. Yeah. And it's not true. And you see that with unions across the country, you see that pattern of, of messaging from the, you know, from the corporations versus, you know, mm-hmm. what you hear from the unions themselves. But you're a, you're a writer yourself. Like, right. Yes. What are you, what are you writing right now? What are you working on right now? I currently write for a show called the Orville. Is, I've heard of this show. Have you? Oh, that's good. A lot of, I think a lot of people haven't. I, oh, really? I find, I find that show very popular. Oh, okay, good. In fact, I remember uh, when that show came out and the new Star Trek came yeah. out, and uh, I went to see like my cousins in Michigan who were like, that's a good way to test. I think every writer's got yes. like, that you go visit your family for the somewhere, holidays. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah, and they were like, I I, I was like watching the new Star Trek. I was like, you like that? They're like, no, we don't like that show. The Orville, that's a really good show. And I was like, okay, then it's it's working, you know? Yeah, you know, I've, I've worked. Uh, with Seth MacFarlane for or for Seth MacFarlane for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I was on Family Guy for a number of years. I ran it with Seth for about six years and worked there after I ran it. And then uh, done a lot of animation. I started on The Golden Girls was my first job. I love The Golden Girls. Yeah, it was a good show. When that show when that show's in reruns, I'm still like I watch it. I'm like the jokes are so good. It really is like 
up there with friends or yes. like any other sort of like super funny, love the characters, incredible show. It was a great, uh, great group of actresses. Yeah. Just great. Like you don't, I don't know if we've ever seen any, we'll ever see talent like that again mm. in a group on a show. And then the writers, yeah, we're the writing really funny jokes and, and, um, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have that as my first job. Also, the first job I was fired from. So that's also. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, wow! How do you get fired from the Golden Girls? Well, <laughs> and only if it's a good story. It's not. It's not no, you know, it basically, uh, we were hired by one group of writers uh, who ran the show. Mm. They left. A new a new showrunner came in. Regime change. Regime change. Yeah, and. and Fifty uh, percent our fault, fifty percent his fault. We were, we didn't quite. My, I had a partner at the time, and I don't think we quite figured out how to work for Got him it. fast enough. And he, he didn't really give us. A chance. I'm still waiting for the tell-all oral history of Golden Girls. <laughs> Vulture should get on it. Um, but how do you manage being like so the you know the the leadership of the union like. I think all unions should aspire to is like run by the members, like right. And and you're an active member. You're not paid. You're right. just another member who has been elected. Um, how do you do that while doing a? a you're still a full time comedy writer. Yeah, it's not easy. Uh, I think it's important to state that like the 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 day to day uh, uh, managing of the guild is done by paid staff. Mm-hmm. The the guild union leadership, me and other writers who who are elected to the board of directors and the other officer positions, we well, obviously we are, are we decide the route that the guild yeah. is going to take. We communicate we communicate to the members. We have a help of a very hardworking paid staff. So it's mm-hmm. not like it's not like a nine to five job. That right. I'm doing while I'm also being a comedy writer. Uh, on the other hand, we've been engaged in some uh, important campaigns, and it has been very time-consuming and tiring. And I am fortunate that Seth, my boss, is a very supportive <laughs> member of the guild, and he he you know will will cut me a little slack here and there, but I'm still doing that job. Right. It's it's yeah, it's tiring. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's really funny though for like him. Uh, I don't know for your boss to be a member of the union that like you report to a member right, right. and he has working for him the president of the of the guild. It's like a funny flip. It is know? a funny flip, I, you know. And that's the other thing too. I mean, I think that um, our our membership has a sort of this wide range of mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know um, careers and backgrounds. I mean, um, the kind of writing. You know, obviously there are members of the guild who are movie writers, there are members of the guild who are game show writers, there are members of the guild sitcom yeah. drama. Uh, this why some who are showrunners, some who've just uh, gotten their first gig. Uh, you know that that's probably the hardest piece of our union is is the managing of all the disparate uh, mm-hmm. uh, careers that people have and the dis- disparate priorities that each members have, and then finding the com. The commonality, trying to find that commonality, the yeah. things that affect all of us that we can all get behind. How how do you think the guild like relates to the labor movement generally? Right, because because you know my first impression was, hey, this is like one of the weirdest unions. <laughs> Like uh, in the country, right? Mm-hmm. It's all these uh, people writing for TV. It's a very weird kind of work. A, a lot of people see it as just like a celebrity aspect to it, et cetera. But then the longer I've been in it, the more I'm like, oh, wait, the same dynamics are at play here as in other businesses where you've got companies consolidating real corporate power. They want to drive wages down, uh, et cetera. Uh, I don't know. How do you how is it similar? How is it different? Well, it's similar in, in what you just said, which is we work for large corporations, uh, they are looking in every way possible to pay us as little as possible. It's not personal. They, that, that helps their profit. Yeah. And it's a very, They're just machines that are built to do that. Absolutely. It's not personal at all. They're, they want to pay their employees as little as they can get away with. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, the union that we have we're fortunate in our business that you really can't do anything without writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, just 
the sort of the lie of reality television. I mean, I watched The Bachelor, which I think is just a great show. I yeah. really think it's a great. Oh, it's an incredible production. It's an incredible production, but somebody's writing some stuff there. Oh yeah. <laughs> so oh that, yeah. You know, but it's. I, I love that show. They're creatively really, conceiving yeah. of it, and yeah, yeah. and like they're doing right. outlines. They're they're right. making PDFs to send each other. Here's what's going right. to happen in this episode for sure. Right. So we don't have any guild coverage of those shows, but but what I'm saying is it it's true. The the truth of what I'm saying, which is you can't really do any kind of television yeah. without writers, any kind of movies without you without writers. You just yeah. can't. Uh, documentaries, everything requires the head of a writer. Yeah. And um, so that gives us our leverage and that gives us our power. And that's that's whatever power we have comes from that. And that's similar to other uh, industries, um, garment workers and, and uh, uh, automobile workers. And uh, you can't make a car without the teachers, people building the car. Teachers, you know, teachers, yeah. all the unions have people in them who they – for, in, in one way or another, are required. We're, I think that we may have a little more leverage because in some of those other professions, it may be easier to replace people yeah. on an automobile assembly line. Not completely easy, but – and so, uh, you know, that's that's the similar thing. We're, we're, we're a required labor force and we're a skilled labor force. And also, we're it's different, I think. The way it's different is, you know – when in a lot of other professions, you have people who are, uh, you know, they've just hired, they're they're just uh, they just need a job to support their family, and they're working when and whatever. In being a writer is something you choose to do. Mm. Uh, deciding you're going to be a writer, deciding you're going to uh, pursue that career, is uh, is different than mm. uh, taking a job. In an automobile factory, point. and in a lot of cases, you have to work at it for free for like a decade before you even get your first job. Right, as opposed to other unions are jobs where someone, hey, uh, like for instance, we've got um, hotel hospitality unions here right. here in L.A. of yeah. of people who like clean hotels yeah. and stuff, and that's like a that's that's more a much more entry level. Uh, right, you know, I mean it's and so difficult work, but right. yeah. So and so we're different also because. Uh, finding the finding the solidarity of a union that's always the that's always the 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 hardest thing is is making workers understand that their interests lie with the union and i think when everybody's doing the same job uh mm. although i wouldn't say it's easier it's clearer yeah you know we're all doing this job we're all Working 18 hours a day, that's that's crazy. We're not getting weekends off, that's crazy. We're getting paid 50 cents an hour, that's crazy. Whatever, yeah. uh, you know, whatever that in, – in with writers, uh, as you just said, you work 10 years to break in or however many years it took you to break in. You really feel like you did it mostly by yourself. You may have had uh, mentors. You may have had people who facilitated mm -hmm. the first break. But, but you were doing that work. And then you are in that career alone, especially if you're, I think, a movie writer. I think that a movie writer really is on their own, maybe with the help of an agent or a manager, but you know, maybe they knew a producer. But for the most part, that's a real yeah. uh, solitary uh, thing. And then to get to say to that person, your interests lie with this other group of writers can be hard and, and I think legitimately hard to convince that person – uh, that this union is uh, is about them too. Yeah, um, many feature writers, I think, see see that, see it easily, see the health insurance, see the residuals, and all that. But you know, so when you when you and I'm not just singling out feature writers. I have plenty of television writers, plenty of other writers who just have to be uh, convinced that they're interests lie with the group and that what the group is doing affects them and that or that the sacrifice they may be asked to make yeah is is gonna help them or it may not help them but they sort of see in general the strength of the union helps them yeah so they're going to you know so that i think is the harder thing how was that uh, makes it different from other unions uh, well 
it does. It makes a difference from some unions, but not all. And, and exactly. And the exactly. and the interesting question for me is how that solidarity was initially built, like when the union started and how it's maintained. Because when you look at, for instance, you know, people are talk about like Uber driver unions, right? And, you know, I remember like a year or two ago in LA, a bunch of rideshare drivers like tried to have a one day strike, you know? And the problem was, like they had no way to communicate with the other Uber and Lyft drivers, right? And tell them that they were doing it. So like whichever ones were like on the same message board, they all went to LAX and like, you know, held up their signs. Um, And I knew about it. So I, Hey, I'm not going to take an Uber and Lyft that day, but um, you know, Everybody else, all, everyone else who just has the app is just opening it and doing it. And I can imagine, you know, in a pre-union era of of movie writers, hey, we're all just like getting called up by the producers. None of us know each other. We don't work together. Uh, we're all working separately. There's that feeling of, hey, if I leave my job, there's always someone willing to take my place. There's a line, a million of people behind me who would love to do this work. So how does that uh, well, how do you create that solidarity? Well, I mean, it was different when the union started. The union started in the 30s, mm. uh, writers were under contract to studios, and they were seeing each other on the studio a lot. They would be oh. they would be going into work and working nine to five, and and uh, they would be being handed uh, whatever script the studio wanted them to work on. And so, so uh, like a big like a big movie script boiler room, just I, like I mean, get on this one, <laughs> yeah, essentially. And and so, I mean, you know, it was also the 1930s was the was the time of uh, it was the Great Depression, and the, and there was the rise of of the radical left. Mm-hmm. Communism was probably the most popular in uh, the 1930s in America than it ever was or would be. Yeah, and so uh, radical left writers really organized this union, and it, it was interesting. The the big issue for writers that really formed was the be- the beginning of the union was credit that the studios would assign credit to whoever they wanted. Like literally who's in the credits. Yeah, literally written by. Yeah. And so and they could have five writers working on a sh- movie, 50 or 50 writers, however many writers they had working on a movie, and the usually the studio would just just look at the last script that was written and say that's the writer of the movie. Mm. And uh it was really interesting too was that writers before the union got to determine credit, and that was really the first big fight, was that the Screenwriters Guild, as it was called then, getting together and demanding a, a um, collective bargaining and getting the right to determine credit. Mm-hmm. Before that, individual writers sort of had these strategies to be the last guy who does the <laughs> right. right. Oh, so, and, and credit was really important. It, it was even, and what's so interesting about it, it's really kind of a pure thing at the time because it didn't mean more money. Mm-hmm. Like this was again before residuals. Before Just see your name on it, and and the the very sort of practical thing of if if you wrote Gone with the Wind, yeah. then you probably get another job. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so that's it was those two things, and it was it was about your career, but it was also the purity of credit for your creation, uh, along with the practical economic thing of I want my name on the movie that I created, because uh, that's going to help my career. Um, then over time, and it was a slow build and it was tough, but it was a slow build of then de- starting to demand, uh, what are called residuals payment for reuse of mm-hmm. uh, movies. So, and that really, really came into play in the fifties when television started and they were right. starting to play movies on television and writers were starting to work in television. And then this idea of the rerun, which was, yeah. Again, a kind of an old, uh, a relatively new thing in, uh, you know, I mean, it's the rerun, years. the rerun was new at one uh, yeah, point. Yeah, and so that that idea that you would be compensated uh, again yeah. if your work was reused, and that became part of our our contract as well. And and you know, then the period of the fifties was. Um, the time of the blacklist, mm. which is, if anybody needs to know, was the period when, if you were thought to be a communist, uh, <clears throat> you couldn't get work. Yeah, and uh, ten writers, the Hollywood Ten, uh, were questioned in front of the House Un American Activities Committee. In front of Joe McCarthy's committee, and they and they went to jail. Uh, and these were also people who were also 
the leadership of the Writers Guild. A lot of them were the people who helped form the Writers Guild, Dalton Trumbo and uh, wow. others there. And there's an interesting thing there as well because on the one hand, it was about the fear of communism and the mm -hmm. fact that, that uh, somehow this idea that communism was going to seep into the public through movies – and so, so there, and there was that fear, but there was also a practical thing from the corporate side because for the first time, this guild was starting to cut into studio profits. Mm. And it just so happens that the leaders of that guild and a lot of the members of the guild at the time, the guild was not, didn't cover all writers. You had to join, but a lot of the people who joined the guild were on the radical left and were being accused mm -hmm. of being communist. So there was this opportunity to sort of decimate the union. Wow. So like weaponizing that anti-communist fervor just in the name of corporate profits. I, yeah. I mean, that wow. was a piece of it. It was both. It was, yeah. you know, the communist thing was also, I don't want to say that that was just a whole fake thing. I think people really were scared, Yeah. but but then there was also this sort of and there, corporate benefit yeah. from uh, limiting the power of the union. However, during the entire blacklist, and it was a terrible time. A lot of people lost their careers. The guild still kept uh, their power of determining credits. Mm. Now, there is, um, it's interesting because they would determine the credit and then the studio would say, well, that writer's a communist. We're not giving him credit. <laughs> and there's a movie called, I think, The Friendly Persuasion, A Friendly Persuasion, I don't remember the exact title, that won the Academy Award, I think, 1956 for Best Screenplay, but mm -hmm. has no screen and no screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> it won Best Screenplay? It won Best Screenplay. But it has no screenwriter. Well, now, it now it does. And that's the point I'm making mm. is that because the Guild kept, kept its power and kept determining that when the blacklist ended, they could go back and get – uh, mm. get those writers the credit there yeah. was denied them during during the blacklist and so but that movie won best screenplay but the studio wouldn't put the wouldn't put the yeah. writer's name on it be, and there was only one writer it wasn't like he shared it he wrote the movie yeah um i think his name is michael wilson anyway i think so but the guild was damaged uh, a lot of people had issues with how the guild conducted itself. It didn't take a strong enough political stance. Uh, a lot of writers were hurt. But because it did that work of continually determining credit, yeah, uh, it allowed – uh, a repair job after the blacklist ended of getting writers their credit back. And that's a baseline – that's just a, a baseline piece of dignity to have your your name on your work yep. and be respected. And, and right. also it's – I think it's a wonderful thing about our business that, you know, at the end of every piece you watch, everybody's name is on. Yeah. You know, or, right. or I mean – It's very meaningful personally yeah. when your name is on something. It's just – it is. Yeah. It's, it's – it's, I can't even – It's meaningful for me when I watch our show where I know everybody personally who works right. on the show right. and I see all of their names. I'm like, right. yeah, this is, this is all of us. It's not just, you know, a bunch of randomness. Yeah. Um, Although I do – it's interesting. I do think that it's personal to us, the people who yeah. do the work on it. Uh, I do have a story, though, of like I think of how little it means to people <laughs> in, in America. I, I, there's a movie. It's a movie called Logan's Run. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very well-known movie, which I saw three times in the theater as a kid and never noticed that the screenwriter's name was David Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> Though it was your name <laughs> on you the screen, yeah, <laughs> big name on the screen. David is a different different middle name. David Zelag Goodman. I'm like, and I've I'm like, how did I miss that? How did my dad, who took me to the movie, yeah. miss that? I mean, but we do, you don't you're not reading credits. But but just to the to the point about that, like it sounds maybe so trivial or or like narcissistic, but I think about how I've read about how in the video game industry, for instance, which is going through its own sort of labor awakening to some degree, or at least it's very, it's at the very beginning stages. Uh, I read about how the, uh, you know, game companies use credits as like a weapon um, against uh, the people who are working on the mm -hmm. games that like, Hey, if you take another job, your name won't be on this game. If you, if you like, you know, they work on these games for, wow. for five years. If you leave, you know, early, your name won't be on the game. Or if you don't really pull your weight, your name won't be on the game. Mm -hmm. And like both in terms of those people's like careers um, of like, wanting to say, yeah, I wrote the story for this right. game or I or I led the art team. Um, and then also for their like 
just emotional connection to their work as being like, you know, creative work, which is always deeply personal. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's really sort of heartrending. And I can, I can, it makes so much sense for why that would be one of the, one of the very first things you'd want to fight for. Right. I mean, I think that was probably the thing that was getting writers most angry. Yeah. Was this, because I think the other piece of it is it's, you know, as you, as a writer and you're, you know, you, you know this, you, you, you make, you write this thing and it's caused you probably a fair amount of pain, whatever yeah. it is. And, and, but you also feel this sort of a little bit of joy and like, I solved this problem yeah. or I came up with this idea or this character, I wrote this dialogue. And then somebody says, uh, yeah, you know, we're this guy who, who wrote this one line, he's going to get the whole, all the credit for everything else. And it's like, <laughs> right. And, and it's still a problem to this day. I mean, it, you know, it's it, it's still a big issue in the guild because the way the guild determines credit is a bunch of writers re. You know, the studios will hire numerous writers. There'll be numerous yeah. scripts, and the way when credits, uh, like people might not realize when you watch a big when you watch any big blo- right. blockbuster movie and you see three names maybe written by these three people, right. probably what maybe a dozen people could have actually contributed, you know, opened their screenwriting software and and at least done something on it. Exactly. And so the way the credits are determined is that all the drafts get sent to the guild and then a group of writers, three writers read every draft and decide, (laughs) Oh my gosh, decide who contributed the most and there are rules and there are, and it's hard and it's imperfect to, to, to say the so least. So there, there's someone, there's someone at the guild who read every draft of uh, Star Wars, of the new Star Wars, the right. the the and sky, the Rise yes. of Skywalker, right. and knows exactly what went down in the writing of that movie. <laughs> and like, uh, who, well, there's more than one. There's a group of writers yeah. who read all those scripts. Oh, you should have seen draft three. That was the good one. But then, oh, <laughs> things took a turn. <laughs> I don't know that they're making judgments, but I it was. Uh, You'd have to be a little bit, but it was a. Uh, it was. Uh, I've done a lot of arbitrations in television, and it's an interesting process because we we almost always are in agreement. The writers all read, and it's like it's so clear that this writer contributed the most. Yeah, this is the person who figured out oh the main part of the story, yeah, and right. then it all it, yeah, yeah. yeah, and everything else is interesting and. Uh, additive, but it's still this person's creation or this person added this major thing. You've got yeah. to give them credit or, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting problem, but again, very imperfect. It's cause because again, now credit is connected to money. If you get credit on a movie or, or a television show, that means that's determinative of how much money and residuals you're going to get. Yeah. And if you did, if you did a lot of work, and you don't get credit, you're yeah, you're pissed. But I also want to talk about, um, you know, I think there's a perception that you know people know that some writers are are paid a lot, right? Oh, J.J. Abrams, you know, nine figure deal or whatever, right? And there's so there's like a perception of the Writers Guild as as you know representing right. those writers. But then when I go to the meetings, I'm like, well, hold on a second. The things people are talking about are the same things that workers are talking about everywhere, right. like talking about healthcare and and paid parental leave is right. like one of the big things that comes up at every meeting now, yeah. which is like everybody is in that same yeah. boat with paid parental leave. And, you know, beyond those issues of, of credit and, and those sorts of things, like there's so many, you know, I, I don't want to use the word rank and file, but there's so many like middle-class like people in our. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, delete me has been an indispensable tool for me For many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, 
but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Business who are who, who are like being protected by the guild in this way. Well, I mean, you know, even though you have, again, members like JJ or Seth or who are big earners, the guild isn't there for them. Yeah. Where the they've guild, got agents and managers and lawyers and well, everything. more importantly, yeah. the guilds the guilds creation was a was about making sure that there was a minimum amount of money that a writer would be paid, that they would get health insurance, that they would get residuals, and that's always been about the middle class writer. Uh, the fact is, the benefits that the big uh, big writers get. We're not negotiating the contract with the companies to protect the interests of our yeah. top earners. We're in. We're, we're entirely focused on um, what what a what a, a new writer makes, what a mid level writer makes, and making sure that the companies who are making lots of money from that work are properly compensating. Yeah, uh, those writers. The guild sets the minimum wages in a essentially. Yeah. 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 And. Um, I think, it, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me because uh, writing is like, you know, TV writing is like a pretty good uh, bit of work to get, you know? Um, it's great. We're very lucky to get. I yeah. Mean, I, I, I can, I'm, you know, again, my mother was a social worker. Yeah. Uh, she raised three kids. I never made more than $40,000. That Her end salary when she retired in the 80s was 40 grand. Yeah. Um, you know, we never we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't we and and she worked her ass off. Yeah, I, I mean, I work hard, but it's a different kind of work, and I get yeah. to make things up for a living, and that I I feel so lucky from that perspective. But it strikes me that you know we have this perception. Hey, that's a great line of, of work to right. be in. Right. But it's because of the guild that <laughs> that it is <laughs> like it could be very bad. I know people who work in reality, right. and they. Uh, it, it's not a nice business to be in, and it's a lot harder to make ends right. meet, despite the fact that the shows make just as much money. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a great point. I think that the 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 leverage that writers bring to bear by being part of the union protects, tries to protect the um, the work environments and the pay, but you know that. It's a constant battle, and now is the and now we're entering a period where writers are. Um, uh, it, it is feeling a little bit more like reality. There, you know, a lot of the streaming services that are doing series. It takes a lot longer to do those services, right? And and it can keep them from keep writers from getting a new job. It can keep writers from earning above the minimum, mm-hmm. uh, and that so that uh, the working conditions are. Uh, are we were fighting the we're trying to fight the changing working conditions because we yeah we want we want it to be uh, is that, that downward pressure is constant constant yeah constant. well I want to talk more about how the business is changing but we got to take a really quick break we'll be right back with more David Goodman Okay, we're back with David Goodman. Um, so, so what is the leverage that the guild uses in order to fight back against those pressures? Like, where does the power of a union even come from? It's almost like ineffable, like on the wind. Like sometimes you're trying well, to figure it out. No, I mean, I, it's uh, the only power. The only real power a union has is to strike, hmm. or and to threaten a strike. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It. I'm not. 
you know, you don't want to do it. Uh, you never want to do it, honestly, but, yeah. but sometimes you have to. Uh, so for instance, the power of the Writers Guild uh, to stop the flow of product by stopping writing is powerful. It's yeah. scary. It's scary to the companies. They, they, in the lead up to a strike, they start doing everything they can the lead up to the, uh, to the rumor of a strike. Yeah, they create a there's a rumor that there might be a strike. (laughs) They start like stockpiling scripts, going to television shows and saying, hey, could you do a couple extra scripts so that if there's a strike, we can we can shoot some episodes or uh, uh, going to feature writers and saying, hey, you got ideas. We'll buy it. We'll buy it. We can get the script done because if there's a strike, then we'll have scripts because it. It, they want that the flow of product is very important to them. And yeah. That, and the flow of, again, in the launching of these new streaming services, as an example, new product is uh, paramount. That is, The Mandalorian is what launched Disney Plus. Right. You know, I mean, all that other stuff helped. Yeah. But The Mandalorian, like, is and, that is literally the most popular show in the world, I think. I yeah. Think it's literally that. And Watchmen is how HBO is fighting and, back, right? Yeah. You know, they put, they'll put, they're going to look for the new, what's this new product, you know, and HBO Max, which, you know, they're, they're, they've obviously, they're keeping, I think, friends and, and they'll be launching. That's the other big thing is whoever has friends is like <laughs> winning, right? Whoever's got friends or well, South Park or, or I Seinfeld. Mean, I mean, there are some of the, you know, the friends, the office, those kind of perennial shows that people are still watching because of their Simpsons, because of their, their brilliance. Um, are meaningful, but but it also in order to drive new subscriptions, yeah. you still need new product. And yeah. So the you so, got to see this. I got to sign up. Yeah. Yes. And so that to me is uh, comparable to historically the guild's power was we could uh, put a crimp in the launch of the network television season if we went on strike. Mm-hmm. So that that it's an unfortunate. I you know I I face uh conversations with the members all the time is like is there anything else we could do is there you know and and don't we have any other power and we have some leverage uh but you know when it comes down to it a union's power is its ability to stop working yeah and i mean what else what else is there to do but to say hey the deal's not right. good enough. We we right. respectfully decline. Right. <laughs> we're right. we're not going to take the offer, and so we're not going to do we're right. not going to do the work for you. But the union also has to make sure that its members agree that that's the strategy. That, yeah. That 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 you know that if we stopped work now, we would get what we're asking for. Is what we're asking for realistic? Is this you know? And so that's always the. The question, the guild decides, it's an interesting thing. It's sort of where I started this conversation. I don't have any power. I really don't. I yeah. only have the I only have the the way the the role of spokesman. But if the members aren't for it, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, if you show up to a meeting and you say, Hey guys, I think uh, it would be a good idea if we all went on strike and everyone just you boo, we're going back to work tomorrow. <laughs> I mean you're done. Like you you're can done. you can call a strike as much as you want, yeah, but no, you can't you, force anybody to do anything. You the members have to see that whatever whatever the guild strategies are are in their interest. And if they don't, you know, then you're done. And yeah. And that's also, you know, part of the problem. I'm not talking now about the Writers Guild. I'm talking about unions in general. Is that because of this downward pressure on wages, uh, be, because people in in so many industries are making less money and having a much harder time, and I mean that that they can't even risk the idea of being out of work. So the yeah. union loses power, and and that's the the success of corporate America in. Demonizing unions and uh, consolidating their their power, and, uh, and that's really a, a sad state of affairs uh, for workers in general. Yeah, but it's also and there's a little bit of hopefulness in there that that if no, you Adam, there's no hope. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find a positive. No, no, I'm uh, sorry, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, I'm thinking if you're you know if you're listening to this and you're and you're you know a worker as as. Yes. Everybody is, right. as every adult person right. is, um, and you're not in a union, and you're you're not happy about your your work. Right. Like there is 
power and leverage in, yeah. you know, if you look around your office, everybody there, well, if you decline to work together. We, we've you know. seen it. We've seen it with teachers in, um, was it Alabama? There was a, yeah. uh, we saw teachers who. Uh, teachers in LA went on strike this year, but last the, year. But, but the, I think the Alabama teachers weren't unionized. Yeah. And they went on strike. And I don't know that they're unionized still, but they were making so little money. And, and so they saw, they saw they had a, 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 uh, um, they were all being oppressed. They were all not being paid for the work. And their students could, were being hurt. It was hurting and, the state. You know, so that, and there was a lot of both support in the state, but national support. And that's that's the beginning of unions again. It's like we're yeah. going through another cycle where because unions have been decimated, now workers are suffering and they're seeing there's power in working together. Yeah. And so, yes, that's the hopefulness. It's a, It's, I feel like we're, We've been on a downward trend in unions in this country, but then it will swing up again because workers will unite again. Yeah, and that, and they will see that being in a union works to the individual's advantage, and that, uh, and that's where all unions started. It starts with a group of workers deciding. Uh, our interests are aligned and we've got to fight together. Yeah. I read a really interesting framing of this. I think it was Hamilton Nolan, who writes about labor issues a lot, um, described it as that for decades, uh, corporate America decided it wanted to have labor peace, that, you know, work conditions for workers were so bad. You had strikes all over the country that debilitated the country. You had, you know, massive unionization. And then uh, it was, you know, a lot of times it was scary. It stopped, you know, the economy a lot. And it was such a problem right. that, you know, corporate America was like, okay, let's have peace, right? Let's like make a deal with these workers right. and all these different industries, audio, auto industry, right. entertainment industry, so many industries um, that gave them a fair deal, right? And over the last couple decades, they've decided, actually, we don't want to do that anymore. We don't want peace. We're okay pissing the workers off. We're okay diminishing wages. If it makes people angry, it makes them angry. We'd rather have more profits. And now we're starting to see unrest again that um yeah i think comes I mean, from there i don't know who that writer is i think that that uh, your presentation and that analysis really takes takes out the the fact that that workers really showed their power mm -hmm. uh for they showed the kind of power that they had uh, so that whether or not corporations wanted peace or not, it didn't matter because these unions had power. Yeah, uh, and were using their power. And so what's happened is there's been a diminishing of that. I really since the Reagan administration, there's been a there's been an assault on unions, so that unions in general represent now a much smaller group of workers. Yeah, of all these right to work uh, states now, which are right to work is a, it's just an awful. Uh, lie because mm -hmm. it's not right to work it's you know it's we're going to kill the union state yeah it's then, it's a it's an abridgment of the right to form a group that yeah, represents you exactly. and to have solidarity right so and those were all but they they put it in this thing of right to work so it makes it sound like it's in the workers interest when it's not yeah and this has hurt the uh leverage of unions across the country and and workers unfortunately now are sort of uh, having to find their way back to understanding the power of yeah. collective bargaining. When uh, you said that, you know, the, the union's real power is when it goes on strike or when it withholds, you know, its work. Or, or the threat of a strike. The threat of a strike, yeah. What are the, you know, what are the gains that, you know, the Writers Guild has made through going on strikes over the years? Um, well, in 1960, there was a strike that gave us uh, our health uh, benefits, which is like thank you a, to those writers who went on strike for giving me my health and benefits. That, and there's always sacrifice. The writers in that the writers in that union gave up residuals on the entire library that existed before 1960. So those writers gave up money. And there's always sacrifice. Wow. And they that and that was part of the deal. We're giving that up. We're giving up the money on all that entire library so that going forward, members will have health insurance. Wow, amazing, really amazing. And so. Uh, the most recent strike in 2007 was about the internet, and and writers during that strike made personal sacrifices. The deals were canceled. They gave up work, and and uh, and then it, all, it timed out with uh, a big economic downturn. So uh, a lot of those jobs didn't come back after the strike, not because of the strike, but because we it was the the huge economic downturn in the country. 
But we got coverage of the internet, and now yeah. it's between 20 and 30% of our members work on television shows and feature films that are streamed that wouldn't be covered if we hadn't gone <laughs> yeah. on strike. And, and, and that was in 2007 that yeah. the Guild saw right. that coming. And it's a really, you know, I remember, I was, I remember I had just been elected to the board, and I remember other leadership and staff trying to explain to me that people were going to be watching television shows on their computer. And, and I'm like, <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. And then people telling me, t describing smart televisions, like there's going to, your computer and your television are going to be one in the same. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I didn't It's a good thing you weren't making all the decisions I, then. Absolutely not. But I'm like, no, but all right. If we yeah. have to, we, I believe them. I believe they're being sincere. I just couldn't picture it. Yeah. And Hulu launched like the next year. Hulu launched the day the strike ended. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, the wow. companies knew what was happening. The company, obviously the companies were planning. They, that's why they made us take a strike. They, the, that's the other piece of this is that, you know, we said we wanted coverage of the internet. The companies took a gamble that we wouldn't be able to hold together and that they might be able to get the internet for free. And because they were, they all had corporate plans about yeah. streaming, about, you know, the idea that, that it's so hard to remember that like, when you loaded a video off the internet back then, it could take forever yeah. to load a five-minute video. Yeah, and they and so the idea that you could think that they're going to be making television shows for the, for the internet that doesn't seem possible. Yeah, the technology didn't seem you couldn't. And then obviously the streaming thing just started getting better and better and better and happened so fast. Yeah, uh, and the companies were were working on it, and so thank God. The leadership and the staff of the guild was too. That's right. what we're seeing the future because we'd be so screwed now if we hadn't gone on strike in 2007. Wow. Uh, people ask me about the agency campaign. They say uh, they've read a little bit about it yeah. and they say, what? Amer America's read a little about it? I mean, do you think really that? People listening to this podcast have any idea what this is? Perhaps they have not. Like, if they follow me on Twitter, they'll occasionally see me tweet about it. Like, my friends from home are like, what the hell is going on? Can you explain it in 30 seconds? I, I'll try. Yeah. Uh, our agents, uh, the way agents used to operate in the old days was they would take 10% of a client's uh, yeah. income for helping them get a job and negotiating their deal. Uh, over the years, the agents have developed, uh, their companies have grown and they've started doing something uh, uh, called, um, they would get a packaging fee mm -hmm. from the studio. And this is instead of taking commission from the client. And as a result, this packaging fee, which was associated with representing the client, but was not being paid by the client, was being paid by our employers to our agents. Yeah. The agencies got uh, rich, these big uh they become they've become big companies themselves. They've also a couple of them have started producing, and as a, as a result of that, the clients they're representing's income has declined. Mm -hmm. Our our income as writers has declined over the last twenty years twenty five percent. Not wow. not. And I'm not even taking cost of living. I'm saying wow. actual decline. Wow. And so we realized we needed to address this. So last year. The guild again. We it was all um, about reaching out to the members and explaining this to them and saying we really feel like we need to fire any agent that is going to be taking these fees and going to engage in these conflict of interest because the idea that an agency could be producing uh, television and movies is a conflict of interest because if yeah. your agent is your employer, they're not your agent anymore. Yeah, I I remember. When I finally understood the issue, like my own boiled down version of it is like the the guild is by law the only body that can like allow agents to work for writers, right? right? We right. grant the ability to yep. agents because the union is, you know, by law right. negotiates on behalf of writers, but right. the union says, hey, the agents can do everything other than the minimums, anything, right. everything other than scale. And so the question is, should a labor union give the right? to negotiate for its workers to people who are being paid by the bosses. Does that make sense? That's essentially right. For the labor union. <laughs> and, and, oh, clearly no. So we withdrew yes. that, yes. that, uh, right. And said, okay, you can't, you can no longer right. represent a writer if you're being paid by the bosses of the writer. I don't know why you asked me to explain it. You explain it so much better. 
<laughs> Thank you. Well, I do my I do my best. Um, well, so that's now that is it's an interesting battle because it's not a it's not a battle with the bosses directly. It's with oh. this other these other bodies yeah. um, that have been that work in the industry, but. In the same way, those big agencies have been buying each other. They've been taking on these massive yeah. investments, and they're trying to hoard power yeah. um, in the business. Uh, and so, it's been a long battle with this—you know—these sort of like major forces of capitalism. Um, how, you feel it's been going well? Yeah, it has. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, um, all you know at the beginning of this process, all the agencies were unified against us. Now many of the mid-size and smaller level, smaller agencies have signed, uh, have negotiated with the guild a new agreement, have signed it, are representing writers again, and they'll no longer be have those conflicts of interest. Right. They're no longer paid by the bosses. Um, and writers, uh, some writers are still, I think, upset that they're not with their agents, and uh, that's something we take very seriously. Uh, the Many writers have found other representation, whether it be managers or mm -hmm. lawyers. Uh, and then the question remains, when are uh, these big four agencies, who are the sort of the remaining agencies who haven't signed, when when, and if they will make a deal with us? You know, there have been discussions. I, I don't have an answer to that right now, but uh, I think uh, I think writers – in, in the majority of the members of the guild thought this was the overwhelming majority yeah. of the members of the guild thought this was a fight we needed to uh, take on, and again, the overwhelming majority are still for it. Yeah, uh, but you know, we never fully agree on anything, and I don't dismiss the people who are against it either. I, you know, and I have to keep a close watch on how the members are feeling about this and yeah. do everything we can to resolve it. Well. It, that brings up one of what I think is sort of one of the core conflicts or core questions I have about unions in general, because you're always going to have – look, as you say, uh, the the strength of the union is its membership and the membership feeling the same way about something right. and putting their – putting their their money where their mouths are and, and fighting for that thing. But you're always going to have people who disagree, right? I remember one thing that really stuck with me, um, one writer uh, wrote a, like an op-ed somewhere about how they didn't agree with the agency campaign. And they said, uh, I just don't like being in clubs and I don't like other people telling me what to do, right? And I'm like, hey – I can't argue with that. I can't tell that person that they're wrong to right. say, I didn't, I don't want to be in this club. Yeah. I didn't sign up to be, but I have to be. Right. And I don't like it telling me what to do. Um, that is a little bit of a, you know, through another lens, a core American value of like, no one should get to tell you what to do. Right. right. <laughs> um, right. And so how do you think about that as, you know, a person who's the leader of that group that like, you're always going to have folks who feel like, Hey, what the fuck is this? Why do I have to be a part of this at all? I mean that that is a that's a, a it's a tough thing to deal with. I think that uh, what I try to do with anybody like that is a is a reminder of the things they have gotten from being part of that group. Mm -hmm. As you just reacted to the strike that happened in 1960 that gave us health insurance. Mm. The health insurance that gets transferred from one employer to another. Like I can be, I can have, I can work for every studio in town. They all pay into my health, uh, yeah, uh, fund. They all pay into my pension. I don't have to have fifteen different accounts. My, you know, and that's all part of being part of that club. That because because you write a movie or a TV show and you get money if it's rerun, that's from being part of that club. Yeah. And so trying to make people understand that there's real benefits that wouldn't exist. Uh, and again, I think there are writers, actors, directors who would be giant successes without being part of their union. But the overwhelming majority of our members yeah. have gotten – some substantial benefits from being part of the union. And that's, that's the, that's the conversation I try to have. I don't convince everybody. For sure. And I, I don't, I don't expect you to, you know, it's just, uh, and I understand why you think about it in terms of that day-to-day -day conversation with right. those members. But I also like, there's a, there's a philosophical question as well of like, there's this idea that as Americans, like we should always have, 
the ability to make any choice we want at any time, which is obviously not true in daily life, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. Well, I but, mean, you know, I I'm constantly faced with the the, the hypocrisy of of the the, the self made American businessman, which yeah. who who. <laughs> it relied on the U.S. post office, the, the U.S. road system, the U.S. education system, the, you know, all the things that America gives everybody or tries to give everybody. There's nobody self-made. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, and so uh, that idea that I shouldn't have to pay taxes because I did it on my own. No, you, yeah, you didn't do it on your own. It's a lie. That's a lie. Yeah. And, um, and that's, most of the members of the guild, I think, understand that they didn't that they got something from being a member of the guild, and that's that's our that is our strength. That most yeah. of our members, uh, I think, even almost all of our members, recognize that there there was there's a positive uh, association with their own lives and careers because the guild existed. Yeah. Uh, the comparison to taxes is, is a really good one. That That's a similar thing where like, why should I have to pay this just for existing? Right. I heard an interview, this stuck with me so long interview with Doug Stanhope, who's a great comic, um, libertarian. He was interviewed on Mark, Mark Maron show years ago. And he said something like, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was like the question of being a libertarian is, did I come into this world owing anybody anything? Right. And I was like, oh, that is a really good question. He, mm. he feels like he doesn't. That's like a f- uh-huh. feeling of his heart. Right. I can understand that. I disagree. Because if you <laughs> if your mom drove to the hospital on a public road, then you do. Right. <laughs> right? Then you then uh, then I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you to chip in for the road <laughs> if, if that's how you came into the world, well, dude. I mean, also, I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess the doctor would be paid, but the doctor wouldn't have any place to work. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know, hospitals are, you know, things that exist uh, because other people yeah. put them together. I mean, maybe if you were born in, you know. If your mother just yeah. Uh, or you were you born at a state <laughs> university hospital like I was? You know, for were example, uh, I believe so. I think I be- <laughs> I believe I was. Um, again, for the folks who are listening to this show, uh, you know, thinking about their own workplaces and thinking about what they can maybe take from the the guild's example, um, or just from your uh, thinking about you know labor issues in this country to their to their own places. Like, what do you uh, wh- what do you have to say to them? Well, I mean, don't listen to what a company says about a union. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, don't, uh, that, that to me is the, the biggest one. I think that, uh, don't, don't listen to, I mean, this, I'm sorry. I don't listen to what the Republican party says about unions. Mm. I, 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 they're not being honest. Um, I think that to me, so, so on the one hand, you've got to sort of push all that noise aside and sort of look uh, at your workplace, look at the other people in your workplace and decide, is there, is there power uh, with us getting together? And don't, you know, and it's a tough thing for me. I've never had to form a union. So that idea yeah. of starting from a place of, of having to form a union, I, you know, I am have such enormous respect for the people who do it, who stand up and say, and there are people doing it all over the country now. Yes. And, and to me, it's like, they're real heroes, not just, they're not just out for themselves or they understand they're out for uh, a lot of other people. And so, uh, you know, and if, you know, you're in a union, uh, if you're in a union, I think the thing, the most important thing that was said to me, uh, was from, um, I have a cousin who was a, a union organizer for the communication workers union. And when I joined the guild, when I got my first job as a writer and she lives out here and she became their chief legal counsel and a strong union person, she said, she told me the a union is the only bureaucracy in your life that you can have some control over. Mm. And she said that to me. I didn't quite know what she meant, honestly. Uh, because again, you think of the unions as kind of, you can think of your union as kind of like the DMV. It's like this thing and it's out there and it's like, you I got to deal with it. I got to deal with it, but I really don't want to, and never want to go there whatever, but it's not a union is this organic thing made up of people. And you can, if you get involved, you can really affect change. And, and I, 
that has been my experience. I've noticed that as well, just from showing up at meetings. And first of all, it's democracy in action. It literally matters in the room when we're talking about the agency campaign or striking or anything else. How do the people in the room feel? Absolutely. Are they, are they applauding for the idea of, you know, being tougher? Are they applauding for the idea of taking it easy? Um, and that has a real effect. And then right. like, if you show up to enough things, you'll just start getting asked to be on committees and shit <laughs> <laughs> and, and do work and make for decisions. Free. Yeah. yeah. But, you're, but those decisions affect people. You're a great union member. Oh, I love oh. seeing you in meetings. Oh, that's okay. I'm going to end on that note. Cause it made me feel warm and fuzzy. Thank you so much for coming on, David. Oh, thank you. Adam. <laughs> I right. appreciate it. Well, thank you so much to everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Goodman as much as I did. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, and Andrew W.K. for our theme song. You can follow me everywhere you want at Adam Conover. Sign up for my mailing list or check out my tour dates at adamconover.net. And until then, I'll see you next week on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.